From Share Profits, brought to you from Wales by 30 Yards, this is the Share Profits Radio Show, episode 25, for the 17th of February, 2020. And here's your host, Tom Winifred. Hi, this is indeed Tom Winifrith with the 25th edition of Share Profits Radio, brought to you by from Wales by 30 yards. Well, I say that. Uh, the River Dee, which is the boundary between England and Wales, uh, runs through my orchard and the fields uh, near to the next to the Welsh Hovel. And it's uh, this morning at about six o'clock, hit its highest level since the year 2000, its highest level in 20 years. It was only eight centimetres off breaching that level. I think the previous high was 1962, before any folks talk about global warming and all that sort of thing. As a result, the River Dee uh, now laps right up to uh, my back door uh, and into the farmyard here. It's all pretty dramatic, and I've put some photos up on my personal website. I'm not sure that that alters the boundary between England and Wales. We're still firmly in Wales by 30 yards. It's just you can't see the boundary. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yards of water. Anyhow, I digress slightly. My guest on this week's show uh, is Ben Turney, formerly an editor of Share Profits and now trying to oust the board at Nostra Terra Oil and Gas. We had a a wide-ranging chat, as you will see later on. One of the things that I took Ben to task over uh, was his apparent addiction to trying to turn around failing listed companies. I think you can do it, but it's just incredibly, incredibly difficult. There's a difference between going into a failing listed company and turning it into a cash shell and then trying to inject another business. Uh, That is something which Adam Reynolds, uh, Chris Ackers in a rather disreputable way and others uh, uh, have engaged in over the years. If you can make sure that the shell is completely clean, and that is to say there's no legacy issues, a problem Ben has had with New World Oil and Gas, uh, but if you can make sure it's completely clean, uh, get in some venture capital on the basis that there may be uh, uh, some uh, uh, upside from injecting in if you, uh, a good business, you can, if the business you inject is a quality one, make real money. If, of course, you inject a bad business, then you're not going to make any money. Personally, I have never seen the point of cash shells. Uh, it costs maybe 300000 to do a reverse takeover, that is say, to inject a business into a cash shell. Uh, you could probably list a business for not a lot more than that, and you wouldn't have all the legacy issues not least of which are a whole load of shareholders who've lost nearly all their money and will be looking to jump ship as soon as they can make any of it back. So you have a whole load of stale bulls. So personally, I've never really seen the point of it, but I accept that it can work. That's very different from going into a business uh, and trying to restore that business, trying to turn that actual business around, uh, which is what Ben uh, says that he plans to do at Nostra Terra. We'll come on to that later in the show. 
because you really don't know what a mess the business is in. If a company, if a business has been run almost to the point where it's bust uh, and its share price has collapsed, the odds are it hasn't got any money. And the odds are the fact that it's been run to the point where it's almost bust is a reflection, uh, largely, of bad management. Okay, there can be economic headwinds. You know, the financial crisis of 2008 derailed many businesses, including the one that I ran at the time. Uh, and you could say that businesses which are trying to do uh, 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 make money in China right now may have a few problems with the old coronavirus. These things can be economic headwinds. But largely, businesses get into a mess because of mistakes made by management. If you were uh, going along towards 2008, uh, you could see that things were starting to go a bit bad as the financial crisis set in. What you should have done was uh, husbanded your cash. You shouldn't have uh, uh, carried on spending it. If you are involved in the oil and gas sector, uh, as Nostra Terra has been, uh, you should make sure the assets you buy are ones that can have a relatively quick uh, return on capital. There is no point just throwing more and more money, good money, after bad in, in projects that suck in capital and never deliver a return. One of the criticisms one might make of Nostra Terra is that some of the assets it, bought, it has bought, one thinks of its little venture into Egypt, uh, have been bad ones. One can criticise the management for the way that they have deployed cash. Quite a bit of it, it seems to be uh, on paying themselves bloated salaries. One can uh, blame managements for executive greed. One can uh, 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 blame managements for all sorts of poor decisions. The problem is that when you get a business and you take it over from a bad management, you just don't know what you're going to find. You may have a relatively recent statement of assets and liabilities, but do you really assume that that's going to be the whole picture? There are probably an awful lot of unpaid bills you didn't know about just sitting in the desk drawer of the former chief executive. Uh, there may be contractual liabilities which you are unaware of and which investors are unaware of. There may be all sorts of nasties hidden there. And the odds are that a bad management team will leave all sorts of nasties there. It is phenomenally difficult to turn around a business. Most times you go in and try and turn around a business, I have bought one or two struggling businesses, and you soon discover why they're struggling. They're just bad businesses. They're in the wrong sectors. They're in the wrong industries. They don't have the right product. They have bad middle management. They have a useless sales team. There are any number of reasons why they are bad businesses, and turning them around will undoubtedly prove to be far more expensive than you had uh, envisaged and that you had budgeted for, if indeed they can be turned around at all. It is very, uh, very often you will find that your initial investment in buying a bad business or buying taking control of a bad business is then compounded by the amount of cash you need to A, to keep it going until you can turn it around, and B, A, in order to take the uh, necessary actions to turn it around. Sacking people is expensive. You have to pay them their notice periods and all that sort of stuff. So, it is something which will cost you much more than you have expected. And even if you do turn them around, your returns are rarely those that you expected. 
In other words, it is a very poor economic decision. It's something I've learned to my cost in, in life. If a business is in a mess, there are good reasons why it's in a mess, and it will probably stay in a mess. Uh, it is not a way to make money. It is far better to invest in good businesses and watch those good businesses which have grown continue to grow. That is the way to make money. Bottom fishing, whether you are doing it as an investor or whether you're doing it as someone looking to turn a business round, is rarely a strategy that proves profitable. Anyhow, Ben will be coming up shortly. Uh, this podcast is brought to you for free, uh, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan. Actually, Open Orphan is something that goes against everything I've said. Open Orphan has been created as a result of the merger of two businesses, uh, Ven Life and HVivo, both of which were complete and utter dogs. Both were badly managed, but it does appear that the new management team of Open Orphan has dealt with the issues of bad management. It has taken out costs uh, relatively easily uh, and is growing revenues. I'm a believer in the company, which is why I'm happy to take its sponsorship. I'm also a shareholder in the company. I should declare that. Uh, I don't know what the shares are today, something like 6p, something around that. Uh, I expect to be selling at 10p uh, in due course over the coming months, uh, or indeed at an even higher level. And uh, if you want to know more about Open Orphan, I will be getting its CEO, Cathal Friel, on the show, or its chairman, Cathal Friel, on the show pretty shortly. Uh, and you can listen to him in uh, uh, Share Profits Radio Edition 8, outlining his strategy, and follow the company at Open Orphan. Thank you to Cathal uh, and the Open Orphan team for their continuing sponsorship of the show. And now, let's have a short break before the man of the moment, Mr. Turney. My guest on this edition of Share Profits Radio is a former editor of Share Profits. That's a badge of shame. Uh, ben Flipflop Turney. Uh, I'm interviewing him today because of what's happening at Nostra Terra. But before we go to Nostra Terra, uh, let's go back to uh, another company, New World Oil and Gas. Ben, am I right in saying you now run New World Oil and Gas? Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Yeah, that's correct. It's now called Erich Capital, which, of course, is the investor in Nostra Terra that's recently requisitioned the general meeting. OK, but one, one of your finest moments as a journalist, or many finest moments, was the work you did on New World Oil and Gas when it was a listed company. Uh, I mean, there's so much that was wrong with that. Uh, I think that was the first fake shake incident, wasn't there, uh, uh, on the ANC? We've had quite a lot of fake shakes since, or shakes on the make. But that was the first one, wasn't it? It was. And there's a, there's a brilliant photo knocking around on the internet somewhere of the directors shaking this guy's hand. And it was hilarious. So some of the notes that I've picked up of you know, taking over the company, they went and had a, a meeting with this guy who basically took him took them to the Kuwaiti equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce. And they had a, a meeting in like one of the little breakout rooms. And they met some random guy who persuaded them that he was part of the Kuwaiti oil company, which, of course, was complete and utter rubbish and gave him, I think it was 1.5 million euros as a down payment, which he promptly sailed off into the sunset with. You couldn't make it up. You could make it up. Obviously, that was announced. Uh, well, they did make it up when they announced they were giving the fake shake all this money. Um, was that announced for an RNS? 
It was. And if you remember, we, we were working together at the time and you and I, I think we managed to demolish that story within about four hours because we, we found the, the right link on the Kuwaiti Oil Council's website, which published all of the approved um, contractors. And of course, Al Moran, which was the, the so-called company that was going to you know, open up the Kuwaiti oil fields to this little aim tiddler. I mean, I'm even laughing thinking about it now. It was just so absurd. You know, we, were, we proved within a few hours that this was all just complete rubbish. Well, it does beg the question, because we've had a number of fake shakes and shakes on the make since. Do nomads ever do any due diligence on RNSs that go out? I fear not, in all honesty. I fear not. It, it, uh, it is a crazy system that nomads are meant to. They, they, the reason they justify their bloated fees is that they get into trouble if they don't verify statements. Yet they so obviously don't verify statements on numerous occasions. Well, I'm afraid to say this is part of the problem that we're now having with Nostra Terra at the moment. You obviously broke that story from a confidential source about um, Matt Lofgren's failure to disclose what really is a key, crucial banking covenant. Um, whether or not the banking covenant should have even been there in the first place, that's, a, that's another issue to discuss. But the simple fact is that that was material. It should have been disclosed back in 2018. And the company did its level best over recent weeks to try and stop it being published. But the nomad, in the case of, we're going to go back to New World uh, shortly, but in the case of Nostra Terra, this banking covenant, when the uh, uh, when Nostra Terra announced the banking facility, uh, a nomad should say, well, can we have a you know, quick butchers at the facility and should therefore have flagged it up then. It, it suggests that either the nomad didn't bother asking for the facility uh, or that they did and then just didn't think it was important. Either of which is disgraceful. Yeah, I mean, it is possible that the paperwork wasn't shown to them, but you would have you would have expected for a, for a company of Nostra Terra's size with a potential five million dollar facility that they would have got sight of that paperwork. You would have expected that. But it's not a matter of saying it's not shown to them. A nomad should be demanding of its client not only uh, all documentation regarding critical facilities, but all documentation regarding proposed transactions, as well as monthly management accounts. That is the job of the nomad, to demand that as part of its ongoing uh, um, duties. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is just part of a, a wider critique of of, of some of the many problems facing the, the current AIM system and this 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 approach of, of self-governance, self-regulation. I mean, if you look at well, look at how share profits has been so successful over the years. You know, it's the it's the gift that keeps on giving for you because you have stories every day which come across your desk of of persistent, constant failures in this market. And of course, ultimately, the people who pay for this are the retail investors, the people who end up carrying the bag, holding the stock. Indeed. Let's go back to New World. One of the things that uh, uh, struck me as odd about this company was the fact when it floated, you broke this story, when it floated, there was already information on the internet about how Bill Kelleher, the, 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 the chief crook, um, was uh, uh, a risk of de deemed a flight risk by a, a Texas court for not paying a half a billion, half a million dollar yacht bill or something? Exactly, exactly. It wasn't only that he was a flight risk. He had um, uh, marshals pursuing him for this debt across state. I think if he'd set foot in Texas, he would have promptly found himself in, in a Texan jail somewhere. Um, and this had all happened 
before that company even listed. And admittedly, that did take a little bit of digging. If you remember, we we really did have to, to go to town on that one to, to, to find out the truth. But these systems are all out there, particularly in the United States. And even back then, it was all available on the web. You just needed access to the right databases. So this was all publicly available information. But again, who's looking? Well, but it should be. Uh, for doing an IPO, a nomad would be charging 100, 150, 200,000 pounds. Uh, part of that is meant to be that they're meant to be checking all this so that it is, you know, at least, I mean, I would argue that someone with this sort of track record really is not fit to be running a, a public company, even on AIM, but it should at least be in the prospectus. Well, I agree completely. And I mean, it, it, it raises the old question, doesn't it, about whether the nomad is poacher or gamekeeper. They can't be both. But, you know, given the, given the fact that companies pay their fees, um, they're, they're in the position of really performing both roles. They both represent the company, but they're meant also to be protecting the interests of shareholders and the wider market. It is a conflict of interest that is irreconcilable. One of the things uh, about uh, New World, which, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, as an observer of the AIM market, uh, we're going to come to what to what your role is in a while, but as an observer, is uh, this poacher gamekeeper system, it just doesn't work. Um, uh, and because we have so many, well, enough nomads at the bottom end of the spectrum, uh, SP Angel, who I've been commenting on with regard to Vasarian today, uh, uh, clearly can't have done due diligence on its extensive Chinese operations, uh, given what's happening in China. Yeah. But uh, SP Angel, uh, Roland Fatty Cornish, uh, one could think of a couple of other names. Uh, they're all running fairly marginal operations, aren't they? They're not making shed loads of money uh, at, a, at, a, at a, a corporate level. And therefore, it's very hard for them to say, no, we don't want to earn 200 grand for floating this piece of crap, or no, we're going to resign this account and lose a 50,000 retainer. It, it just doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And I mean, I've, I've obviously recently been looking at the accounts of a couple of nomads. Obviously, we've, we've had a few issues recently for exactly this reason, because you've got to, we've got to think with the current situation we're now in, what then happens afterwards. And you know, if we ever were to pursue anybody for damages, I mean, one of the things I've actually been really quite shocked at, and it's not only the nomads, it's also the brokers. If you ever bother to go and look at um, their, their accounts on Companies House, like we saw with Beaufort 18 months ago, two years ago, the, um, you know, the, these accounts are absolutely threadbare. These companies have no assets. They're marginal businesses paying huge salaries to to the, the so-called professionals. I, we have run a, a series of things on uh, exposes on the accounts of, of a number of these uh, advisors. It seems to me that there is a sort of way that this could work with market forces is for AIM to simply accept that the number of companies on AIM has fallen pretty dramatically. Uh, and therefore, uh, it, 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 because of that, you do have too many nomads and brokers, but nomads are the key ones since they have this regulatory function, scrabbling around at the bottom and unable to resign accounts because they simply can't afford to do it, unable to turn down any work. And the way to solve that is to put a couple of them out of business. I think so, to, to encourage the others. And I think what also needs to happen is that every, you know, fairly regularly, maybe a few times a year, the actual, the authorities themselves need to step in and make an example out of some of these directors and some of the companies. So, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you could 
um, reel off a list of, of 10 directors quite easily who frankly deserve lifetime bans from the exchange. And it would be easy easy to do, but of course, for whatever reason, the powers that be, you know, have avoided doing that. And as a result, they've just simply, you know, amplified the mess. Well, they have, you see, they have, I know they've done this on at least one occasion, uh, which is Sefton Resources, when I exposed the fact that Jimmy Lyra Ellison had either stolen the company's money or committed perjury <laughs> or both. I think it was both. Uh, AIM regulation told Sefton, either you step this man down or uh, we are going to tell the nomad uh, that it must resign with immediate effect. And in order, therefore, to preserve the listing for Sefton, ultimately it's disappeared for other reasons, but in order to preserve that listing, they had to fire Ellerton. And I think we saw with, uh, with certainly with Rangers that they made it clear to any nomads who were prepared to take on the account once, I think, WH Ireland had resigned, if you do that, will make your life total hell, and therefore no one took it on. So AIM regulation does have these powers, but it, it, it uses them far too rarely. Well, you coined the phrase, Tom, if you remember, the, the LSE's policy, so the London Stock Exchange's policy towards clearing up this market has been by covert assassination. So you're absolutely right. They do have the powers. They do use the powers behind the scenes. But when, when did they ever publicly make an example of anybody? They haven't. You're absolutely right. Um, and and it, 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 it's, I always think it's a bit unfair on companies. Companies don't commit fraud or don't lie or behave scandalously. It's the individuals. Exactly. And usually where the individuals have done this sort of thing, Sefton being a case in point, uh, shareholders have already suffered enough. They're, in the case of Sefton, I think Jimmy Lyre destroyed 99.9% .9 of value or 99.98% of value. Uh, so the shareholders have suffered enough, but it would be possible just to say for, for the for aim to take out, as you say, a few directors. And we could think of a few names and we're not going to either of us pick up a libel suit by mentioning uh, uh, anyone other than Neil Ricketts. But we could we could it could take a few names and just say you cannot carry on being a named listed director. Otherwise, your company is going to lose its listing. Since all these companies need to be on AIM in order to raise money, they can't raise it anywhere else, that would be a way of purging people. And that, that I think, would improve behaviour all round. Well, exactly. I mean, it wouldn't be a panacea, so it wouldn't be the silver bullet to solve all the market's ills, but it would certainly discourage a lot of those directors who are on the margin of being, you know, sort of erring on the side of good behaviour and bad behaviour. It would certainly cause them to think twice, think about their actions a bit more and, and hopefully even act more better in the interests of shareholders. It's, it's all very so erring on the, the side of, of good behaviour and bad behaviour. But I always take it that if a director has told one untruth, the odds are they've told a whole load of untruths yes. and we just don't know about it. Uh, and if you if you if you nip it in the bud by you know banning one person who's told one untruth, then that's going to a stop uh, a small fraud becoming a big fraud, um, or, or, or a small lie becoming a big lie. But it does also send out that message to other people who who might be tempted. Absolutely, um, I agree 100 percent. One thing before, last thing before we leave New World Oil and Gas um, was something I have uh, gone on about uh, uh, a lot over the years, and I know you have as well. And actually, reflect so we could talk about tethers in this respect. 
is this issue of directors' expenses. How big was the largesse at uh, New World Oil and Gas? Oh, sickening, Tom. Absolutely sickening. So to give you an example, Bill Keller, who was the former CEO, um, from the point that it became public through to about early 2013, when their, their um, oil well um, didn't come in in Belize, his average monthly um, expenses were between twenty-five and $30,000 a month. I what? Mean, what I was know. he spending on? Well, if, obviously first-class flights everywhere, top hotels, first-class meals, um, everything that you could imagine. I mean, I've, I've got one, I found one invoice where the directors went out with those so-called Neil investors, um, where between them, between five of them for one meal, they spent $27,000, $12,000 on one bottle of wine. I mean, this, it's just beyond sick. Uh, well, obviously, people who behave in that way are, are morally bankrupt um, because it's shareholders' money they're spending, and there can be no justification for that. But uh, one of the things I've pushed for uh, and been completely ignored is the fact that directors' expenses should be revealed in the annual report. Can you Absolutely. see any argument against that? Absolutely not. And to be honest, Tom, I mean, we've we've obviously not done any work together for quite a while, um, but I, that's the sort of campaign that I would, I would love to get involved in. And I also know a lot of other people who would as well, because it's just such an obvious way for for directors to, frankly, to pilfer money out of out of companies and, and afford themselves really lavish lifestyles. And it's an easy fix for the market. It's an easy fix for the exchange to to um, to implement and would make the market more transparent, make it fairer. And hopefully we'd see more of these businesses being run properly as businesses rather than just lifestyle companies. I think with Tethers, uh, I can't remember who it was who revealed, I think it might, might have been me actually, uh, uh, but uh, uh, they'd spent eight grand on a shooting party? Uh, I think it was 12. <laughs> I don't know uh, anything about it. There can be, again, there can be no justification for that, can there? When you're, when you're a loss-making company, can you see any... I suppose if your BP is the justification of 12,000 quid for a shooting party? Well, I mean, again, no, and you see... Not really, is there? Uh, exactly. I mean, but, and that, that was, you know, the tip of the iceberg with, with Tethers as well. So I've obviously taken over two former listed PLCs, and I've got to be honest, I'm, I'm just, I'm disgusted at what I found with them, you know, the, the way these businesses are run. So, for example, the Tethers.com um, domain name, uh, Jason Drummond, the former director, picked this up, I imagine not for very much, when um, Tethers and Greenwood went pop. Um, in the financial crisis, he sold he sold the domain, and bear in mind this is just the domain name, back to Tethers for twenty five thousand pounds. Right, I know. Okay, but he was he it was his company. He created the company. Surely he should have been um, sort of vesting it in for for shares at the That's worst. The thing, Tom, you know, he, if you remember, he it was actually a, a former listed shell. It's it's one of the oldest companies in Britain. It made buttons or something. Uh, it made, um, what was it, buttons. It was a buttons manufacturer yeah. back in the day. So it was listed. So it was a cash shell, which one of the other directors had cleaned up and Drummond was then brought parachuted into it. So, of course, you know, he just he just went to town on pilfering the company's money, which was such a shame because he had such a brilliant idea with, with the app. And if he had just applied himself even a little bit, he could have made that business a success. But, of course, it was just another, another cash box, you know, another for him to stick his fingers into, along with the help of his former finance director, Nilesh Degas. Who is still operating in a number of aimlessly companies, isn't exactly. it? Yep, exactly. 
Uh, he will. I think he'd be uh, very high up my list for people to be struck off and banned from being AIM directors. Um, what? I mean, we're, we're mentioning tethers and, and New World, where you obviously have evidence of this expenses culture. Do you sense that it is widespread? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, you, you obviously you have a, you have a sense and a feeling for it. So when you go and meet a director, and you know they want to meet you in a Mayfair hotel, and and the excuse I always love is, oh, I'm staying here. Like I've managed to get a discount because of course, cause of course these these Mayfair hotels give discounts, don't. They? And it's just and there's so many of them use it. It's just such a it's just such a poor lie. So yes, I, I'm afraid I do. I think it's I think it's rife. I think the attitude within the market is that this money is the director's money. They are somehow entitled to this standard of living because they're such titans of industry. And, um, you know, they compare themselves. I mean, you mentioned BP. They compare themselves to, you know, execs at the very top of their field. And I mean, I, I dread to think what the expenses are at that, at that end of the market. But at this end, it's just completely unjustifiable in these, in these loss-making companies. It is unjustifiable in companies that are A, loss-making, but also where they are, in so many cases, destroying shareholder value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other thing which galls me is that these people claim to be capitalists, and uh, nothing wrong with that, but we've seen uh, so many oil and gas and uh, mining companies go bust over the years that market forces tells me that there's probably a surfeit of useless oil and gas execs uh, and mining execs, and that should be forcing wages down. But in fact, that's not happened at all. Exactly. And I mean, you you touch on a really good point there about being capitalist, because I think one thing that you and I can certainly agree on is that for all of the other ills that afflicts AIM, it is still a fantastic mechanism for raising money. If we think about what the free flow of capital has done to develop economies and develop society over the last hundred years, I don't want to get into the whole Brexit debate, but if we think post-Brexit Britain, having a, a proper growth market could be a phenomenal asset for this country as we move forward. There's a great deal of investor appetite. It's an incredibly liquid market, despite all of its problems. You know, there is a lot going for it, but because it's sadly is so badly mismanaged at the corporate level, so much of that capital, that precious working capital just gets wasted. Whereas if it were deployed properly and effectively, um, you know, it could it could do wonders, make a lot of money for everybody who's involved, including the investors. The problem uh, I see, though, is that it's a wider problem of uh, it's so few of the people who are running aimlessly companies are genuine entrepreneurs, as in people who risk their own capital to set up a business. Uh, They don't risk much of their own capital uh, in most cases. They just take it out in terms of expenses and pay uh, and uh, 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 selling shares when they can. So they're they're not entrepreneurs as I define them. Uh, they are just crony capitalists, but there's a wider system. It's all very well bashing the CEOs and the FDs for, for having the shooting parties, but they're not the only ones. Nomads, brokers, PR firms, they all organise these shooting parties. They all go down to Indaba, and whatever Andrew Monk says, at Indaba they're all having a jolly good time, drinking vast amounts and partying, and they're not paying for it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They're not paying for it, are they? The people who are paying for it are investors. Exactly. Uh, You and I can criticise the CEOs, but it's very hard for nomads and brokers and accountants and lawyers and everybody else involved in this sort of hog fest to criticise them because they're all doing the same thing. 
yeah exactly and of course yeah they're, they're all they're all skimming their percentages off the the various fundraisers and all of the other arcane secret little ways they make money out of these stocks flogging flogging ultimately worthless paper onto the public and you know making making huge profits off the back of it and, and living it up do, do you we talk about worthless paper do you think uh, the majority of aim stocks ultimately are worthless paper majority um i think far too high a percentage yes um and certainly at the lower end and particularly these companies that have been knocking around for far too long haven't gone anywhere have got sub 10 million pound market caps um i I think that too many of those really are just fee paying machines they they will never serve any useful economic purpose i think the, the last time i reviewed it was about a week ago uh the number of companies capitalized at less than 2 million on AIM was 65, which was more or less the same as it was a year ago, but there are fewer companies on AIM. So the percentage has actually increased. If a company is capitalized to under 2 million quid, given the costs of being on AIM, which must be 150, 200,000 a year if you include non-execs, how on earth is it ever going to raise the capital or, or do anything which can create shareholder value? Well, this is this is this is where Next should really be be taking up the strain. I mean, if only those guys could get their act together and and make that market, you know, sort of more readily available to trade, um, a, sort of a, a lower cost market that these could move into. But for Aim itself, yeah, you're absolutely right. Just the, the the overhead of of being listed when you factor in the nomad fees, the legal fees, the broker fees, you're looking at what best part of three four hundred thousand a year, mm-hmm. and then of course direct the compensation. You say that Next could be an alternative. My problem with Next is, as we've seen with uh, Block Commodities, formerly African Potash, a company thrown off AIM for committing fraud and lying, uh, so it's no matter resigned and no one was prepared to act for it, has gone on to Next and has continued to tell lie after lie after lie via the news track system of Next. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would not invest a cent of my money in a Next listed company in the knowledge that its regulators allow companies to tell total lies and do nothing about it. Well, like I said, if, if, and I did caveat the point, if if they get their acts together, and you're absolutely right, accepting, you know, cleverly or whatever his name is with that company, which you know, you you I think you proved was was, was fraudulent or was was certainly dishonest. And um, yeah, it's, oh, it's uh, fraud. I'll go go. It's fraud. They threatened to sue me, and uh, that of course was their bigger. Undoing because I said I'll be taking the nomad to court uh, uh, as uh, uh, involved getting him involved with uh, disclo- full disclosure, and the nomad promptly quit. Um, so yes, yeah, how they took him on, but they've allowed him to carry online, um, and that's the worrying thing. And that, uh, any market which allows that surely is uninvestable. I'm afraid you're right. Okay, now let's turn to, to Nostra Terra. And before we go go to Nostra Terra and the specifics. You invested in Nostra Terra a year ago. Yes. What were you thinking? Uh, what were you thinking in, of doing it? Why? I mean, okay. So I, um, it's a very good question, um, and which I'm happy to go into is why we're why we're here today. So I um, started working for the company in April 2016. You, uh, you have let's 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 nail this before we go any further. Sure. Uh, obviously, you have a uh, a GM where there's a sack the board situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be putting across your point of view. They'll be putting across their point of view. 
I am aware that they are doing their best to uh, uh, smear you, Ben. Of course. Um, and therefore, one of the things I'm told is that uh, they're saying that you took undisclosed payments from Nostra Terra. Undisclosed payments is absolutely ridiculous. So um, I, I used to work for them on a, on a monthly retainer basis, helping draft the RNSs which meant obviously that I was privy to inside information, but I stuck to that, um, you know, all of the policies and the protocols precisely. Nothing I was ever given ever leaked. Um, I worked- You were paid for doing this. I was on a monthly basis. So I, I worked from April, 2016 through to January, 2019. And the reason that I resigned from that role was um, I actually carried on working the first week in February last year when I was first made inside for the placing, but I didn't get I didn't get paid for that month. The reason I resigned was because we were about I was about to take a notifiable stake with um, Erich, and I just felt it would be a conflict of interest. I felt I couldn't I couldn't carry on being privy to inside information so regularly, helping the company draft its RNSs and also be a notifiable shareholder. So so I stepped down from the role. You know, this idea that these payments were secret, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I think I think it's even on my LinkedIn profile that I worked for them. It's certainly part of my pitch to other companies because, as you know, Tom, because you used to employ me, the main way that I've earned, earned money over the last 10 years has been as a professional writer. And I've done that, you know, in in, in different in different um, guises. I've done it for sites like yours, other websites. Of course, I run Value the Markets now, and I also contribute and help run Mining Maven. You know, I've got clients in the US, I've got clients in the UK. You know, I help with some other companies writing their RNSs as well. So, you know, I at heart, I am a professional writer. So, you know, this idea these are undisclosed payments is is absurd. How sad to see people go to the dark side. You, Zach Mir. At least having subbed both of your copy, I'd say I'd rather read an RNS written by you than by Zach. But <laughs> yeah, now now I, I must admit I'm very glad I don't have to edit Zach's work anymore. Uh, that is that is if 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 there is a hell, Ben, then uh, it will be you spending eternity subbing Zach me his copy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I had a few years of that, so yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, now we'll go away from that. Of course. Zach, uh, uh, he, he can't blame the fact that uh, he got a poor education at Harrow. Harrow. Um, <laughs> his parents should ask for their money back, I know. Um, it's, uh, we, where were we? we were, oh, it's okay. So you, you, um, so you were so taken by the company, you invested. Have oh, you not? Right, so I, didn't, I didn't answer your question. So you asked me, so what was I thinking? And of course, you know, in hindsight, it's, it's an excellent question. But up until, up until February 2019, with what was publicly disclosed, the company had obviously been through an incredibly difficult period when the oil price crashed. Most of, I think all of its peers went out of business. Existing shareholders did all get wiped out. It was a, when I first joined the company, it was a very, very difficult and quite unpleasant time. But what I saw on a day-to-day -day basis was Matt was slowly starting to turn that company around. He managed to get the company up to two million a year in revenue, which compared to all of its peers, you know, I think that Nostra's got more revenue than Sound, 8-8 Energy, UK Oil and Gas, um, and I can't think off the top of my head of a number of other companies, but you know, between them, these these businesses have got over a billion pounds worth of market cap. Nostra Terra has got more revenue than they do. The company looked like it was heading in the right direction um, to become cash flow positive at the PLC level. And the financing that was put together last year, of course, Miton came in and took a 10% stake. Now, of course, Miton, you know, I won't go into this, but there have been you know, other issues since that you've talked about recently. But at the time, that gave a degree of security. You know, a, a fund like Miton coming in and taking 10% did look like a, a significant event. With hindsight, um, it's a bit of a kiss of death, isn't it? Miton's uh, stock selection makes... Uh 
Chris Oyle seemed like a genius stock picker. <laughs> Look, obviously I can't comment on that because I'm I'm certainly not one to point any fingers given the current position I'm in at the moment. But um, the um, you know I, I thought what I picked here was an honest guy. Um, I thought that it was it was a, a person who was being more entrepreneurial, someone who who was actually trying to drive the business forward. But of course, one of the things I've learned recently is that, you know, he got awarded this huge pay increase in August 2018, which was backdated to the start of that year. And I'm afraid, to my mind, he made increasingly compromised decisions um, and defensive decisions because ultimately he was taking home a very large paycheck each month. So, you know, didn't you know about that? No, so it wasn't actually... Uh, he awarded, awarded in August 18 and you worked until January 2019. Yeah, so obviously I hadn't seen the, I hadn't seen the director's service contracts. And when I was first made inside on the deal, I was actually abroad with my daughter at the time. Ideally, um, I would have liked to have gone and seen those service contracts, um, you know, to, to have got more of a feel for it. But it was only when the accounts were published that summer, so four months, five months, nearly five months later, because they were late as well, that we actually learned what, what, his, what his salary was that year. And of course, which I'm sure is, is a coincidence, the company's chairman, Ewan Ainsworth, took home um, nearly £100,000. Even though his service contract is for $16,000 or something. Exactly. £16,000. And according to the circular they put out last week, it was you know quite nicely topped up with consultancy. Now, bearing in mind, I worked for the company over the course of that year. I, I hand on heart, have not got the first clue what else he did for the business. Mm. Is, uh, no, but when you discovered this in May of last year, that uh, Lofgren was troughing it, uh, I mean, 250,000, it's not obscene by the standards of the AIM casino, but it's not, I mean, I admit it's, you could, you could employ quite a few nurses for that. Uh, what did you say to Lofgren? Yeah, we ch- ch- I challenged him on, on his um, pay previously. And um, how to describe this? I'm afraid we, we gave, shareholders gave him the benefit of the doubt for too long. You know, we kept on, um, you know, he kept on talking about sort of plans that he was hoping to implement and he was going to do this and that. And, you know, announcements were put out to the market about the license that he was pursuing on this 160 acre opportunity. But then, you know, permitting just took forever, which frankly, looking back, is actually quite suspicious. I don't believe it should have taken that long. And again, if you looking back now, obviously, crystal clear vision, you know, we can see there was just delaying effort after delaying effort. And it got towards the end of last year where patients were starting to run thin. A number of opportunities and potential directors had been introduced to him, all of which had been resisted. Um, the, the tone of the conversations obviously started to get a bit more aggressive. But it was only at the start of this year when we were running into constant obstacles and, and obstruction that started to talk about requisition. And that's, of course, when he dropped the bombshell to me on a, in a phone call about this um, this uh, negative government with the loan facility. To, to rewind, is uh, the company has a $5 million loan facility. It's uh, on the hook at the moment for $1.7 million. And if uh, uh, Matt Lofgren leaves the company, the bank could call it in with 30 days' notice. Okay, so just, just to be clear on that, because that was how Lofgren originally represented it to me, but that's not actually quite the case. It almost is. It's if, if Lofgren stands down as president of the subsidiary. So he can lo- he can technically lose his board seat, and that doesn't trigger the covenant. It's, it's if he lo- leaves the company under any circumstances. 
Now, of course, one of the big problems with this, Tom, is that this presents horrific key man risk. This should have been presented in the 2018 audited accounts. You know, Lofgren is a very keen cycler and he races and he's also getting on a bit. So, frankly, if he came off his bike... He's younger than me, but mind your language. <laughs> Sorry. So he's obviously, you know, if he came off his bike and injured himself, which is quite could quite have easily happened, then that technically could have triggered this. You know, if, if he decided to leave the company for a better offer or, you know, some other misfortune had, had, had struck him down. Um, but of course, you know, none of this none of this was disclosed. So we as investors were completely in the dark and we relied on what turned out to be extremely faulty information about the company and and its and its health. But isn't this a problem if you go through with the GM, if you boot uh, Lofgren out from the PLC board and uh, uh, the Troffer Ainsworth at the same time, I would have thought it is likely that Lofgren will say, well, screw you, Tony. Um, I'm going to, uh, uh, well, you wouldn't use that language because he's obviously a devout fellow, but mind you, Ben, I'm going to leave the company altogether. Yeah, it's quite possible and it's definitely a risk and it's something that we're looking at at the moment and I, I, I'll certainly be publishing some more thoughts on this in the near future. But I mean, the, one point to bear in mind there, Tom, is that if he does take that decision, that would be completely on him and that would be his actions causing shareholders quite significant losses, having grossly misled them in the first place. Personally, I wouldn't want to take that sort of risk. Right. But shareholders might, might think that this is a danger. And uh, whilst it, uh, it's a danger they don't, they don't want to risk, is it possible, do you think, could the company refinance? I definitely think the company could refinance. Um, there have been examples recently of, of companies refinancing where historic loan facilities have been taken on. Um, the other thing, of course, that we have to, haven't talked about is, you know, it's by no means certain that the bank will necessarily call the loan in. Um, the, the state of the Texan oil and gas market is not very healthy at the moment. There have been quite widespread layoffs. There are a lot of assets that are being sold over there. This is all in the public domain. Very easy to go and cross-reference this on the internet. Um, this loan, from what we've been told, and that is obviously a caveat given what we've learned, but from what we've been told, the loan seems to be performing. So, and, you know, the size of the asset, surely that becomes more of a headache to the bank than, than it would necessarily want. Uh, yeah, I think, I think I've been seeing data that sometimes bank loans secured against assets, when those assets have been sold in a fire sale situation, uh, the banks have lost 80% of their money. So presumably they're, uh, they're not going to be in any rush to, 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 to crystallise such a situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so one of the things I've been most disappointed in engagement with the Nostra Terra board over recent months, and particularly over recent weeks, is they've, they've taken this extremely hardline situation. We should never have got to requisition in the first place because the proposals that were put to them were, were evidently in the interest of the company, in the interest of shareholders, and actually in the interest of the board as well. Of course, what we've learned now about their financial compensation, you know, I understand now more about their motivations and why they're behaving as badly as they are. However, that being said, you know, as often is the case with these situations, a negotiated settlement still probably would be the best thing to, for, you know, for all concerned, um, and in particular for the bank as well. Um, there definitely has to be corporate governance changes. I mean, one of the things I was appalled about, which I learned from Ainsworth, um, was once Lofgren had told me about this loan facilities quite late at night. Well, the next day I got straight on the phone to Ainsworth and he told me he wasn't aware about this. Now, this is the chairman of the company. I'd love to know which director signed that, that loan facility off in the first place. How could the chairman not have been aware of such a material key man risk to the business?
Is he, is he non-exec, Ainsworth? Well, good question. He's chairman. He's officially non-exec, but he's obviously being paid one hell of a punchy annual salary. Uh, who are the non-execs, the other non-execs? So there's one other non-exec, a um, guy called John Stafford. Um, so he's the, the the geologist. He's former GKP. I've met John. I've been, I've, you know, he strikes me as a very decent guy. Um, I've got to be honest, I'm disappointed at his silence over over recent weeks. Um, I'm surprised he's allowed himself to be put in the position that he, he now finds himself in. But having having dealt with him in the past, I actually do believe he is a decent guy. Okay. Now, uh, one thing I just wonder is, to me, Nostra Terra is a bit of a basket case. Uh, it's got, as, as I understand it, more or less no cash, and it's not generating cash at a PLC level. Have you not learned, Ben, something I learned a long time ago, is that uh, if you go and try and turn around a basket case, the odds are you'll still have a basket case. You'll just get a lot of grief yourself. Well, look, again, in hindsight, yes. I mean, I, I do see your point. But if we look back to where we were in February last year, you know, this, this company was was making all sorts of claims about being on the verge of being cash flow positive. And if you look at this this work plan that they've put into the into the circular they've just released, they raised £1.15 million. That would have more than paid for this work plan that they're now saying that they're going to now deliver. Um, so why the hell didn't they just go ahead and do it? And that would have taken us, if not to being cash flow positive, certainly to being very close towards it. I think there have just been some some really serious... Well, I think just poor decisions in the actual management of the business over the last 12 months and sort of where we were a year ago, it looked like this business was heading to heading towards becoming one of those very rare aim cases with, with a business that's actually performing at a fundamental level. And as we all know, those companies that do actually achieve that, well, they can go on to achieve stunning results. So, for example, my other big investment that I've been in since the beginning and, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm fairly well known for being quite a big supporter of is, is Touchstone Exploration. Now, look at what those guys have achieved recently. But if you if you followed that story for the last two and a half years, um, it's it's been steady progress, steady progress, steady progress, followed by spectacular progress because they've run the company properly. And I honestly believe last February that that's what I was investing into. Had I known about this key man risk and this this negative um, banking covenant, well, that just completely changes the whole flavour of, of the risk profile of this investment. How much of the 1.15 million has gone, in your view? My my best guess, I I, it's it's difficult to say, but I would say a very large proportion of it because it's it's a year later, and if we look at the the oil price hasn't been performing that well, and if we look at the publicly available information, the company is burning about give or take a million dollars a year, just under. So um, I would fear quite a lot of it. Near, you're essentially saying nearly all of it. I mean, the rumours I hear is that the company's tried to do a couple of placings and failed. Yeah, well, I mean, I've look, I've also heard rumours about this as well, and I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, of course, you know, for a company like this, getting you know getting the hat out, you know, inevitably word spreads about it, because it's such a basket case now, and because it's been so badly mismanaged. Um, they don't have the right contacts to go and raise money. Um, they've proven that. Um, so of course, they're going to the the bottom feeders as it stands. Mm. What uh, I suppose people might say, Ben, is um, what makes you think you can do a better I'm going to go back to this thing. What makes you think you can do a better job? Nostra Terra, as things stand, I reckon has got bugger all cash, 1.7 million of debt, and is burning cash. Um, surely you should just say, 
look, you know, I, I co-invested with Gervais Williams and I, this stock's gone the way of most of his investments. Uh, I, I should write it off and move on to something better. How could you uh, hope to turn it around? Well, so to begin with, I'm obviously not putting myself forward to turn the company around. And that distinction is quite important. I'm, I'm just I'm representing Erich and I'm also personally a shareholder. Um, the, what I would like to see from the company is if you look at the current market cap, it's almost being priced to fail. Now, if we look at the company's asset, which is which the loan is secured against, that's meant to be in this New Horizons um, subsidiary. Now, worst case scenario, the bank calls that in and it obviously then takes away the asset. Well, that still leaves us with a PLC that is an operating oil and gas company on AIM, which from what we can see in the last set of audited accounts, looks relatively clean. Now. Again, I'm a little more hesitant saying that, given the way that I've seen the board has behaved over recent weeks, that circular they put out, which was frankly outrageous, and of course this negative banking covenant. So I'm a little less confident about how clean this shell is, or this, sorry, not shell, I should be clear, this operating company is. Um, but I do actually believe that it's the sort of thing that could be turned around. Now, other third parties, and I've had a lot of contacts from people, are extremely interested in this company as a vehicle just not with the current board set up and with the current management team as it is now. So I think there are people out there, there are very talented people, people who've been very successful, who would bring in new money, new opportunities, who could set this company on a path to, to moving forward. It's not, it's not like it's a complete basket case that's carrying debt that um, is, is completely unsustainable and unserviceable, because the debt that it does carry is secured obviously against this asset. Plus there also there's some director debt in there as well. Right. Uh, directors, sorry, uh, the company owes directors money or vice versa? Uh, the company owes uh, uh, both Ainsworth and Stafford. They have loans in the company. Right. And presumably, if you got rid of Lofgren, you'd have to pay him out 12 months notice? Six months. So Six I've, I've, been, months. Yeah, I've been and looked at the... Um, well, again, it all comes down to whether or not he quits, Tom, and that's a, it's a really good point. Um, if he quits, then obviously he, he gives up any right to, um, to that six-month notice period. Um, of course, if he doesn't quit and he stays on the board, or sorry, he stays on the board of the subsidiary, then that obviously gives more time to resolve things with the bank and give the bank some surety and confidence that the new team that comes in can maintain the company's assets and operations and can, can continue servicing the loan. But if you, if the point is to cleanse the management team, surely you have to, um, you know, give him notice. Yeah, well, again, I mean, that would be a decision for any new directors coming in. Um, that is fairly common, I agree. But you see, again, one of the advantages to this, Tom, so we're talking about, you know, well, where's the upside? How can this situation be turned around? Well, one of the biggest problems that the company has really been labouring under has been director compensation. You know, at a stroke, OK, we have to pay out some, but if we can slash those costs moving forward, that does make this, that does put the company in, in a better position, a better managed position. Uh, so your proposed directors, would they be taking out, or they wouldn't be taking out $250,000 a year? No, absolutely not. Have they given any indication of what they would be taking out? So again, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a moving feast at the moment because, of course, it all depends on, on, on what the actual final board composition would end up as. Um, originally, when we thought the board was, the current board was 
acting and negotiating in good faith. We were looking sort of at a, at a non-exec role, but obviously it's looking increasingly likely that what, what might actually be, be required is an exec role. And of course, an exec role does require more compensation because it requires more time. What I would, from what I've understood from other parties and other potential investors, I can't, you know, speak firmly for anybody, but one of the clear things that everybody would be looking for in this business is, is, a, is appropriate level of remuneration moving forward that would be pre-agreed before anything else happens. What do you think is appropriate for running a company which has got no money and a market cap of two million? Oh, it's a good question, Tom. Um, it's a difficult question. Um, it, to be honest, it's a difficult job as well. I mean, sort of running one of these PLCs. So is being a nurse at my local hospital, but they don't get paid quarter of a million dollars a year. Yeah, that's true. But again, you know, we, we, unfortunately, you do have to look at you have to look at sort of other other compensation of other directors. So if I look at some other companies that that I've invested in that are sort of similar sort of size, are still loss-making. Somewhere between 70 to 80,000 pounds seems to be about right with, on top of that, bonus payments attached to genuine performance. Look, at the end of the day, if, if, a, if a director, an executive delivers, delivers real shareholder value, it's entirely appropriate that they share in that. It's the, it's the upfront excessive fees that are the problem. Mm-hmm. What um now one thing that's been sort of uh, thrown in terms of mud being thrown at you, uh, Ben, is uh, the suggestion that you're running some sort of concert party, and what you should really be doing is, since you're seeking to take control, is to make a bid for the whole company. Yeah, well, look. So again, this is ridiculous. So immediately before um, I put the, so actually immediately after I put the requisition in, because I timed the requisition to give these guys a chance to negotiate. So I put it in at four thirty on the Thursday. Um, Ainsworth did all he could to try and threaten me and get me to pull it the night before. He his last shot at me at um, six. 45 a.m. on the following morning was he threatened to report me to the takeover panel. Um, I just wished him luck with that. I've obviously run a number of um, successful activist campaigns in the past. Um, I know about the the implications of Rule 9. Um, I know about Practice Statement 26, which um, outlines how minority shareholders can work together to protect their interests without um, triggering a Rule 9 situation. And of course, in advance of even putting this requisition in, I'd already been directly in contact with the takeover panel. I have a case officer there who's managing our case, as I've done with every other activist campaign I run. So I, I was actually very disappointed that the Nomad allowed them to put that accusation into the circular because the nomad is also fully aware of this and they repeated it twice so that's you know when i come to write a rebuttal of what they put out last week that will be one of the points i focus on the nomad is strand strand hansen Uh, they're the people who fell for the the most recent fake shake aren't they Uh, what at lek oil yes yeah I, i don't i don't know the details of that i've just seen some headlines about it but yes i believe so what a diplomat you are, Ben. Um, so, doesn't that, uh, the nomad situation, isn't that another worry that you have? Is that were you to oust the board, uh, that the nomad, having, throw, having been complicit in throwing mud at you, uh, would say that their position was uh, untenable? Um, I'd be very disappointed if that happens. I, I don't get the sense it will. Um, I mean, of course, it's possible. Um, but I think, again, to act in the best interest of the company. I don't see how that would be acting in the best interest of the company. I mean, so far, we're certainly talking about an issue of of a serious failure to disclose. But at the moment, I don't think we're talking about anything fraudulent or necessarily criminal. So anything that might come after this would be a civil matter. 
but I couldn't see the justification for a resignation, in all honesty. Okay. No, so I think we have your vision for taking the company forward would be to uh, reduce the costs. Uh, simply by reducing the PLC costs, do you think the company would be in a position where it was cash flow positive? Well, not, not immediately, um, but with the introduction potentially of a new asset, potentially with delivery of this work program that the board outlined a year ago and has obviously rehashed recently. That but all the money's be- gone, Ben. How can they, how can they um, do it when they want any money? Well, because if so, the so for example, the current borrowing base on the um, on the lending facility is, I believe, 1.95 million dollars. So it was interesting to learn that the current facility is around about 1.7. So it does look like they have some access to working capital there, and the type of workovers that they're looking about delivering, according to their own cost estimates, look relatively modest. So again, we we don't know what the actual cash position is in the company, um, but it possibly they they have enough resource to take that forward. Okay. So uh, you do that, hopefully get the business to be cash flow positive, and then you would bolt on additional assets. Well, that's uh, that, as a shareholder, that is what I would like to see happen. Right, right. What happens if you fail? And uh, uh, let's say that Gervais Williams, with his Midas touch, swings behind Lofgren and, some, uh, uh, and the vote goes against you. What would the outlook be for Nostra Terra then, do you think? Um, I think it's game over. Um, I think that the current management team's um, credibility was all, had already taken one hell of a battering. The reputation was already very poor. The, the recent revelation about the banking covenant was bad enough, but I think anybody who's not emotionally involved in this situation who read that circular, it just looked, it was just very pathetic. And I don't see how that could would really encourage people to want to invest in, in this current board moving forward. Plus, we've also seen based on their track record that inv- any incoming investors will know that these guys will just simply take as much as they can out in fees. So I'm, I'm afraid I think it would be curtains. Maybe not immediately, but I think Nostra Terra would then be a dead man walking. Presumably, there is also the very, very real problem that if the EGM fails to oust the board, we could have a uh, similar situation as we've had with Plutus Powergen, uh, where there was an EGM to sack an obviously uh, appalling board, and somehow the appalling board survived, and that left uh, large numbers of shareholders saying, well, they're going to run this company to the ground, we might as well sell now. So they sold the shares which means that the market cap became even more infinitesimally small, making any fundraise even more difficult. Well, like I said, I think Nostraterra would become a dead man walking, and that's why the, the board should be you know, seeking a, a better way out of this. I mean, look, Ainsworth is gone. Unless, unless, unless the board performs some sort of horrible, dirty trick to dilute existing shareholders, which I'm afraid we can't discount at the moment based on their recent behaviour, but Ainsworth, Ainsworth is definitely gone. With what with what will happen with Lofgren, you know, a lot will depend on this facility. Mm. It, it, uh, uh, um, you, are you re- suggesting that the company may somehow pull uh, uh, a cat out of uh, the bag, if that's the right phrase, and do some discounted placing with, uh, you know, some scuzzy bucket shop? Novum Securities obviously springs to mind, uh, and and that way, a be able to win the GM. Well, it would be a dead, rotting carcass of a cat. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, we've, we've all been around AIM long enough to see the way that directors can behave in these circumstances. And I'm afraid to say that, you know, ultimately, let's just say they did a placing at 0.1p. 
you know, I'm sure there would be some buyers there. And of course, because the price would be so such, at such a huge discount, um, obviously the dilutive effect of that would be that much the greater. I mean, obviously then there, there'd be no justification that that would be in the interest of the company. But sadly, we can't rule it out, Tom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so what does Touchstone do, by the way? Um, so they're in Trinidad. So they've um, had a lot of success recently um, drilling two blocks on the Ortoir block. So they're an oil and gas producer. Um, they, they, again, fantastic model. And this is what I was looking for in Nostra Terra. They, they focused initially on their um, sort of less exciting but, but, um, but reliable production to get the company to being properly cash flow positive, generating three and a half million dollars in the first half of last year. Um, in free cash flow, and then they then use that position to go for some of the more exciting uh, blue sky potential on the Ortoir block. They drilled the first well, I think it was in October, the second well um, finished in December, and both of those have come in spectacularly. So this company was in the IPO 7.5p back in summer 2017. Um, it was trading at around about 41, 42 when I last looked at it. And you backed it? pretty much all the way all the way well, no, all the way so we I, I first met paul bay the ceo um, before the ipo so you know we've been publicly publicly supporting touchstone since the very beginning with value the markets it's been i mean that's been a fantastic ride to be on it's been wonderful um and i was hoping obviously that we would see something similar with nostra terra and to be honest tom there is still that potential there is still that possibility if we can sort out this banking facility if the current board can start to behave more appropriately and in the interest of the company this situation actually can be still resolved and salvaged for everybody but you know these these guys have just got to accept that their days of pilfering as much much that's the wrong word sorry taking as much cash out of the company as they possibly can those days are over yeah, it's legitimately taking cash out of the company morally we may object to it exactly. um, uh, corporately we may object to it but it is legal um, so in terms of what Erich owns, uh, is that it? Touchstone and um, Nostra Terra? We have a couple of other, we have some other undisclosed um, positions. So my, my plan with Erich moving forward is that we've got that legacy issue still hanging over the business, which has been around for about five years. Well, four, well, four. The legacy issue is the naughtiness of the, the management team which floated, the Kelleher and, and uh, some... Um, the sticks or sticks or whatever they're called yeah, exactly the sticks um yeah exactly so um so the plan there is we've got a statute of limitation issue which will probably run until about october this year and then at that point i think it will be time to to call it time on airage and return all the cash to shareholders right and so that will be from uh, uh touchstone uh not terror if there's anything left and your uh legacy investments do you have any big sofa um, no, we, we oh, that that unfortunately was um, the big investment of the companies, but no, we've we've exited Big Sofa. That was that was quite a painful ride. Yeah, we we, we I share your pain. Uh, although uh, it's my tip of the year, and I believe it will come good, but we'll we'll cross see that when it happens. Well, yeah, the guy who ran that company, he he's another one who should have a lifetime ban from AIM. The former boss. Simon Liddington, yeah, exactly. Again, but, you know, sort of entitled, you know, sort of spent directors spending money like it went out of fashion. Whereas from what I've understood about the new team, it does seem like the new team actually look like they really are turning the business around. So I hope that one comes good. Yes, I believe it will. I believe it will. And they're not taking the piss on salaries and first class flights to New York every other day as well. Um, so, OK, so that's Irish. What's happened to Tethers? 
So tethers has been um, in hibernation for the last year. The, the problem with the old tethers model was that um, we were having we were taking uh, firm commitments on placings to be able to put them on the app, which of course meant we were taking underlying equity risk if we didn't fulfill fill the orders with our clients. But I've been working for the last year on a new model for tethers, which has just finished um, going through quite a rigorous compliance process and is now with um, with the lawyers who are drafting up paperwork. So I'm hoping we're going to have some very exciting news on tethers in the coming month or so. Will that um, provide any return for shareholders or should they for um, is that for the for long term? Uh, for shareholders, I think I think we could do. I mean, so when we took the company over, it was technically insolvent. I mean, it owed, it was negative about 80 grand. So we've obviously, we steadied the well, shift. What assets that Justin Drummond said it had? Fantasy. Fan- right. it was, and he, so they had, I mean, there were some assets in there, but of course they were far outstripped by the amount of money that was owed. Um, I mean, you know, there's, there's probably a whole podcast that we could have about tethers and what we found out there, Tom. So there was the money owed, which wasn't appearing on the balance sheet. It just was unpaid bills, which you discovered in Neil uh, uh, um drawers when you opened them. Well, they they were on the balance sheet, but they just weren't on the reported balance sheet because, of course, the last set of numbers, the previous set of numbers, were so out of date. Which, of course, is another issue on AIM. You know, this this company's having to report full financials six months and then half yearly after three months. It means you basically have, what, nine months of the year where you don't really know anything about the financial health of the company. And in that window mm-hmm. of time, anything can happen, as did. Do you think the answer to that is corporately reporting? Because that would be pretty onerous for some of these small companies. Well, you some say companies so. Some annual report out on their half-year report out on time. Throwing quarterly reporting, they wouldn't be able to cope. Well, the Australian model actually seems to be fairly light touch and seems to work. Um, of course, I imagine part of the reason that you know the, the LSE doesn't want that to happen is that they would lose about a third of their clients um, because people would actually see the horrific state of the, these companies' balance sheets and say, yeah, I'm not putting any money into that. Thank you very much. Mm. But would you favour quarterly reporting? I think I would, yes. I think for the sake of transparency and for, for the overall sake of improving the market in the future, I think it would be a positive addition. So quarterly reporting, uh, uh, publicly banning 10 directors a year for lying. Anything else to improve, AIM? Oh, absolutely. Like we just said earlier, um, uh, public disclosure of expenses. Right. OK, that, that seems three very sensible suggestions. Right. Well, we will keep in touch, Ben. Uh, I have to say, I found Matt Lofgren charming um, and I thought he was honest. Uh, it shows uh, something Nigel Ray says every year at uh, UK Investor is, it's very hard to know who is a bad guy and a, who, a good guy because some of the most charming people and the people who seem most honest just totally aren't. No, it's, Tom, honestly, um, it's very sad. I think my overriding emotion at the moment about this whole situation is, is, is sadness. I thought this guy was a friend. You know, he's met my family. He's met my daughters. And um, all, all along, you know, he knew about this facility and the way that he threw it at me, there was, this was completely premeditated. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you can never really tell, can you? Mm. Well, for, 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 not that anyone ever listens to me anymore, but um, I hope if you are an Austro-Terra shareholder uh, that you do back uh, Ben's requisition at the GM. I think uh, this is a board that needs sacking. Uh, and on that conciliatory note, Ben, thank you very much for speaking to me. Thank you, Tom. Well, I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Ben, certainly very wide-ranging. One of the things we picked up on there was the role of nomads and brokers, and perhaps one thing that I should say, 
Uh, in light of the big news this week from Vasarian, uh, a company that features on this podcast almost every week, uh, is the willingness or the, the, the fact that some companies change nomads and brokers terribly often. In the case of Vasarian, the news today is that it has moved from Canaccord as its nomad and broker, uh, joint broker, uh, to SP Angel. Canaccord is a medium-ranking firm. Uh, in football terms, think middle of the premiership. Uh, Everton, team like that. Sadly, not my beloved West Ham. Uh, SP Angel, on the other hand, uh, will never even be my beloved West Ham. It's Millwall, uh, middle of the championship, uh, and no one likes it. It has got a pretty bad record in a number of respects, uh, acting uh, notably for the fraud MySquare, even after it was blindingly obvious and it was notified of to the nature of the fraud that MySquare was operating it's one of the, the problems with lower-ranking nomads uh, like SP Angel that uh, the economics of their business aren't terribly good. There are about 20% fewer companies on AIM than there were even a couple of years ago. But only one small nomad, uh, ZAI Corporate Finance, has bitten the dust. Therefore, for those players at the bottom end of the market, they are scrabbling around with fewer and fewer clients to pay their retainers making the economics of the nomad business ever more perilous. When you're in such a position, uh, you can hardly afford to uh, tell your clients that they can't misbehave uh, because you can't afford to lose their business. Certainly, it's highly unlikely that you're going to choose to resign an account uh, because you simply need that business, that additional retainer of 50,000 quid a year. Uh, so it's not a, a, a promotion. Now, I have it on very good authority that it was not Vasarian's decision to leave Canaccord. Uh, Canaccord had grown increasingly unhappy about the fact that it was being forced to force Vasarian to put out statements admitting this is a told untruths. It was being forced, uh, uh, forcing its client to put out statements admitting to the rather parlous state of its finances. And it was incredibly unhappy about the antics of Vasarian boss Neil Ricketts uh, going on private chat rooms uh, and divulging information perhaps he shouldn't have divulged, uh, and also his tweets, which actually in some cases were so uh, egregiously naughty uh, that RNS statements were forced out of the company. Canaccord really did not like the position it was in, and it was Canaccord that gave Vasarian notice, not Vasarian choosing uh, uh, to move to a far lower grade nomad and broker. That's a big red flag in itself. But one of the other things you may look at, uh, Vasarian, is the fact that it has worked its way through a number of nomads and brokers over the years. That is not a good sign. One can accept that if a company is growing and expanding, uh, then it may move from a specialist smaller cap nomad and broker uh, to a bigger house, uh, which will allow it to get uh, access to institutional investors uh, uh, and perhaps put out more uh, serious research. 
That uh, is an acceptable reason to change your nomad and broker. You may start when you're a small uh, startup company or a cash shell uh, with the sort of nomad like SP Angel, a broker like SP Angel or someone like that. And if you get to a sufficient size, you then move to a bigger house like Canaccord. That would be acceptable, understandable. And in fact, it would be something which you would take as being a positive sign. But if you look at the track record of Vasarian, I'm afraid it has just been juggling uh, nomad after nomad after nomad, broker after broker after broker. What does that tell you? Well, nomads don't resign accounts uh, unless there's a reason to resign. And I think you'll find that the reason that uh, uh, Vasarian has had to change uh, nomad on a number of occasions is because the nomad simply grows sick and tired of its antics of putting out RNSs, uh, which are in some cases blatantly untrue, uh, in other cases over-egg the pudding and where there is no subsequent follow-on delivery. Announcing an MOU with an unnamed giant in a certain vertical and saying it looks forward to this being commercialized in due course and nothing ever happening in the commercial level. That sort of thing annoys nomads. As for brokers, well, it would be that maybe you raise money for the company once and then the company fails to deliver. After a while, you say, we can't raise money for you anymore. And therefore, the company goes on to a new broker, desperate for commission, desperate for retainer, which promises to raise money. Not sure that it will be able to, but it makes the promise and you think, well, it's not working with this one. We'll go to another one. It is a big red flag on a company if it works its way through a number of brokers. That suggests that it has a constant need for capital and that it hasn't delivered and therefore it has to find fresh targets to mug. Uh, but it's an even bigger sign if you work your way through a number of nomads. If you're honest with your nomads and you put out statements which are easily verifiable and turn out to be true, uh, the relationship should be a relatively easy one, a relatively happy one. And barring sort of some, you know, drunken incident at the office party, you should be able to stay with your nomad for a good long time. That is a hallmark of a good company. Losing one nomad is understandable, but to lose two or three really does raise a big red flag. It suggests nomad unhappiness with the clients. And eventually... Companies that behave in this way just run out of rope. They run out of nomads. People say, look, you worked your way through three or four or five nomads. Maybe it's something about you, not about the nomads. Uh, and we don't want to take the risk of taking you on. The heat on nomads is intensifying. Be under uh, no illusions about that. AIM is fully aware that it has a reputation of being a scandal-plagued cesspit. Uh, and it's fully aware that some nomads will sign off on more or less anything. It is clamping down on those nomads, and of course it should do. The best thing for the AIM market would be for the uh, oxymorons at AIM regulation uh, just to say, look, <laughs> Nomad X, Nomad Y, we'll mention no names here, okay, Beaumont, Cornish, SB Angel, uh, enough is enough. Uh, we're not going to tolerate you anymore. You're going to lose your license. Now, if that were to happen, of course, it would mean that the retained clients of those nomads would need a new nomad. A couple of, some of them probably would find it impossible to get a nomad since they are obviously uh, frauds run by villains. But most of them would get nomads and they would be distributed 
distributed amongst the other lower tier nomads, giving them a bit of breathing space and giving them a time to reflect on their own client list and say, well, maybe perhaps you, you need to delist remain. We're not going to act for you anymore. That would be healthy for the market. And it is what should happen. I don't know whether it will do, but AIM Regulation, I know, listen to these podcasts and that would be my helpful suggestion for a way to improve the running of your market. Uh, back to Vasarian. Uh, and it's not just Vasarian. You can look at any number of companies out there. If you have a company in your portfolio and it has changed nomads more than a couple of times over the past two or three years, uh, then that should be sending out alarm bells. It's definitely a red flag. I hope you enjoyed this uh, uh, Share Profits Radio Edition 25. It's brought to you, of course, thanks to the kind sponsorship of Open Orphan, a company which uh, I own shares in and I'm very happy with. If you want to find out more about Open Orphan, follow it at Open Orphan on Twitter uh, or check out the uh, uh, interview with Cathal Friel, the Executive Chairman of Share Profits Radio Edition 8. I will be doing an interview with Cathal shortly uh, to update you on where the company's come to. Uh, I will be back with another edition of Share Profits Radio in about a week's time. Uh, if you enjoyed this and you can't wait uh, seven days uh, or maybe a bit more for my dulcet tones, then stop being a cheapskate. Sign up to Share Profits. It costs you just five ninety nine a month and is a bargain with a podcast today from me and an average of nine articles a day from me and the rest of the team there. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, if you are a cheapskate I'll speak to you in a week's time if you're not uh, and you want high quality analysis I'll speak to you later in Bearcast thank you for listening